From the nation's capital, this is The Screen Lately Show on Choice FM UK. Screen Lately Show on Choice FM UK is brought to you by Clean Home Decor. Get your home looking sharp at clean with a double E, homedecor.com. Emmanuel and Claire Anamasigo with you on Choice FM UK. Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for listening. From our studios in central London, this is The Screen Lately Show. Two hours of movie talk, TV talk, and music inspired by the movies. Thursday afternoon from 4. We're broadcasting online at choicefm.uk, on Mixcloud and on Twitch. We're also streaming at bohemiauphoria.com and screenlately.com. Remember to hit subscribe on YouTube for all the latest clips and highlights from the Screen Lately show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Screen Lately. This is the show where black lives matter, not just on screen, but off screen as well. Coming up between now and six o'clock, we've got another top lineup of guests from the film and TV world. Joanna Rabai will be joining us. She's the newly appointed interim head of creative diversity at the BBC. We'll delve into what she aims to accomplish in that role, plus her love affair with the old Choice FM. We've also got Topher Campbell on the show. He's here to talk about the launch of his new documentary film, Moments That Shaped Queer Black Britain commissioned by BET UK and is now available to stream on demand on My5. We'll also talk about some of the other key figures who are involved in the making of the film. Also joining us today is Stefan Pierre Mitchell, 
an award-winning filmmaker who is deeply passionate about his craft, his approach to filmmaking, and his approach to life. If that's not enough, we've got the Bohemian Euphoria Film of the Week, and we'll have a smattering of great music inspired by the movies. 07548 806 927 is the WhatsApp number where you can live chat with us in the studio. That's 07548 806 927. Email us, news at screenlately.com or you can send us a tweet right now at screenlately. All that to come between now and six here on Choice FM UK.
online on Mixcloud and on Twitch. From the nation's capital, this is Choice FM UK. Joining me now on the Screen Lately show is an old friend of mine who I've not seen in years. I think the last time I saw you, Joanna, was at the Houses of Parliament, which I'm sure you frequent quite often. <laughs> Simon Aubrey was there, Jasmine Wiley hey. was there. I couldn't remember what the event was, but I'm sure it was important. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And I always remember seeing you at your events. Oh, bless you. Your film oh. events, I would come along and they'd be hosted at various places. I think one of which was at Channel 4, if I remember correctly. That's right, you've got a good yeah. memory. I've got yeah, so. so people just have to remind me of all these things. Yeah, you've done amazing stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. And congratulations on your MBE. Welcome to the club. Yeah, I know. Do you know what? Thank you. It's interesting that you said congratulations because I get quite a lot of stick for my MBE. <laughs> Why is that? I think it's about, um, you know, when you're in a role where you're talking about uh, inequity, um, racial disparity, um, inclusion, accessibility. Of course, people are particularly sensitive and rightly so um, around race, racism and its relationship with empire. So um, of course, when you then are an advocate for equity for all, and you're kind of doing a lot of the proactive work that I'm, I've been doing um, and people like yourself have been doing, I guess when you then accept an MBE, which uh, many feel that, you know, um, historically is at the heart of some inequities. Um, they kind of wonder why you would accept or join that. And I think, I think we've seen in the past sort of many people that are from ethnic minority backgrounds and, and in particular black people have declined, haven't they, their honours for reasons related to racial disparity etc so um i don't know i, I very rarely get congratulations <laughs> if i'm honest how about yourself do you get congratulations yes i do actually and um for me just following on from what you're saying i had no hesitation in accepting the award just because of the recognition of the work that you've put in which yeah. as you said is the most important thing the fact that the word empire has connotations. I, I remember I was having this conversation with someone whereby I wasn't there when all of this happened. So it's not fair in a way to kind of pass all those things on to the next generation, because I strongly believe that we are both and other people that have received um, honours, we're here for a reason. And we're here to honour that reason and that calling. And if we so happen to get honoured, Excellent, but the work still remains to be done, as as is the testament with regards to your position now at the BBC. So I, I guess in many ways I had no hesitation in accepting the award, but I don't rest on my laurels. You know, the worst thing in this industry is to be complacent because definitely, like I said, there's so much more work to do. There's so much more hearts and minds to persuade and convince, to change, yeah. to change and to win over. And I guess. We're talking two years on since the death of George Floyd, um, which obviously had so many ramifications, not just for society, but for the film and television industry. Um, take me back to the 25th of May, um, 2020. Do, do you remember where you were when it all happened? That's a really good question. 
Um, I don't remember where I was, um, but I imagine because that was during lockdown, wasn't it? So a lot of the time during that period, I was glued to a screen, um, running all the workshops and doing the sort of inclusion audits that we do within my consultancy from the from the comfort of my sort of desk at home. Um, I've never watched um, to this day the clip uh, of George Floyd dying. I haven't been able to. Never watched it and I don't, think I'll ever be able to watch it if I'm honest um because it's just too harrowing for me even in its how it's been described to me um so yeah I've never watched it I recognized though I remember ringing my dad when things like that happen I always ring my dad um who is from Ghana and I always talk to him about those things because I recognize that his journey as a black male um both in Ghana but also here in the UK would have been one um of kind of um experiencing some of these racial inequities firsthand so often when things like that happen I always just talk to him about it because I recognize that there's going to be a first-hand experience that he might be able to share with me um and educate me on and also a historical experience so taking me through sort of anecdotally what certain times were like because I read about it, I've read about it loads, and I read tons of books on various areas of of, um, of history and around social exclusion, etc. But sometimes when you when you like anecdotally, the stories sometimes bring that period a bit more alive. And lots of sociologists talk about it, and uh, that was what my half of my degree was in. So I've, I've got the, I've got the kind of studies, I've got all the kind of theoretical understanding of that stuff. But I remember speaking to my dad about it from a more, from a more personal experience. And um, he obviously highlighted that that's not the first time that something like that has happened. Um, and not the first time that something like that has happened and had a huge response from, from society. So I felt really sad by that because I felt so in some ways we've progressed so much and in other ways we just haven't progressed at all. Uh, and I think obviously that was in the US. And while we may not um, uh, have captured things like that on video, as in and what I mean by that is someone being killed um, on video here, there are still um, numbers and stats around those um, individuals who are killed in police custody or you know, um, being unfairly treated through the criminal justice system, etc. So we have our challenges here too. But I think at that time, it just made me really, really think about inequity. And the bit I was really saddened by, if I'm honest, was this whole all lives matter kind of response that, that, that we got. So now I know that BLM, of course, is a political movement. And there's lots of things, if you go on the website, that, that the BLM Black Lives Matter movement is asking for. So I think where people were getting confused was that, yes, there was that there is the movement and there's what they're asking for. And then there was, I think, others interpretation of BLM and the, the term Black Lives Matter. And I think like lots of people were just kind of saying that the lives matter. It, not what they wasn't necessarily co-signing the asks of the political movement. I don't even know if everyone was completely educated on those asks of the political movement. I think people just thought of the, the, the concept of the fact that black lives matter and, and by meaning that is you don't just get to put your knee on someone someone's neck 
and with everyone saying stop or you know uh feel no obligation to do so um you don't just get to do that and i think that's what we were saying you don't just get to treat these lives as less valuable um and what was so sad was this response and as you can imagine running a um diversity and inclusion consultancy organizations everywhere globally got in touch and wanted us to educate their businesses and workforce on racial inequity and even saying things like white privilege it became so triggering for um for white individuals and i understood um where that came from that came from a misunderstanding and a miseducation on what white privilege actually referenced because essentially you just got a load of or a large number of white people from working class backgrounds or white people um who had had some challenges in their in their backgrounds or their existing experiences saying how so you know how so do we have this privilege and it's not about you know um a white person who's disabled and their inequity white privilege isn't referencing that it's not referencing a white working class family it's not actually talking about um those those particular other intersections of your identity because those are class issues these are those are ableism issues for example or those are transphobic or homophobic issues what we were talking about was the fact that you have a privilege with white skin um that those with black skin don't often get so they're not so for example you could be white like my mum and um treated differently than those with black skin irrespective of whether you as a you were like my mum a white working class person or a white um person with a disability or a white person who is lesbian for example and and i think that's what was getting we weren't saying that there were no other challenges that white individuals experience or inequities that they are living through we were saying that there is a privilege that comes with having white skin that those of black skin do not experience and so that was all we were saying that you know would george floyd be a be would have would george floyd have been treated that way had his skin been white and i think that was the bit that was getting missed so the sad part in that was not only the horrific death of someone who didn't deserve to be killed nobody deserves to be killed um whether you know there was debate around whether he was a criminal and things like that but we don't kill people in this country for being criminals they serve sentences in a criminal justice system and they have a fair trial right and that's what our whole system is based on so we th- this isn't about like you know we don't get to be sort of judge and jury of people's moral code this is about the fact that people we don't we don't have the right to kill people based on those things um even when you know for example someone has done something horrific our criminal justice system doesn't kill them it places them in in prison so i think we weren't there was all this like kind of discussion around it and that wasn't what was being i don't think that's what the large majority of people saying black lives matter were arguing for they weren't arguing for his moral code you know or um or the fact that there was nothing there's no other in inequity that other people are being fa- are facing i think they were just hopefully i'm not speaking at a term but i think from those i know anyway anecdotally what what we were referencing was the fact that there there is this there is a difference in treatment towards those with black skin i don't know how you i don't know how you perceived it but at that time i was sad that not only have we lost someone 
but now we've got this really quite concerning debate um which saddened me because it made me feel we've come a long way in so many ways and yet we haven't made made progress in so many others yeah i mean without going into too much details because i guess much of it has been well documented Mm. around the time of george floyd i had my altercations with BAFTA with regards to the whole black square phenomenon and all these performative acts that were being carried out by white organizations in relation to that. Um, But that's for another day, because obviously for those that know about the story, it's still ongoing as it were with regards to me and BAFTA. But the one thing I wanted to ask you, just kind of what you were experiencing through your DNI consultancy, were there conversations had about black privilege, because it's all well and good talking about white privilege, but black people have privileges as well. And I was just wondering whether that ever came up in conversation as kind of one way to counter how the media was covering the death of George Floyd. And as obviously a journalist, you would appreciate that as well. Um, How do you mean? Just expand on that a little bit. So obviously everyone uses the term white privilege, but there's no reason why we can't use the word black privilege. And it's just kind of a, a view of mine that I just maybe thought you might have thoughts on with regards to why don't we play up to our advantages to kind of get ahead, as it were, in the discussion and the discourse? Um, that's a really interesting, com- um, really interesting question. And I don't know if I've thought enough about that. So this is going to be a response uh, off the cuff, if that makes sense. This is a in the moment response. I think, I think many of us in privileged positions do use our privilege. Um, if I've understood the question correctly. So for example, there are so many who are in privileged positions who do what they can to highlight and uh, solve or at least challenge um, the inequities that other groups face and as black individuals we are not just allies for black causes i i know many who are allies for causes you know challenges against humanity (laughs) so um who are not looking at life um just through the lens of a black person but looking at it through the lens of humanity so for example i recognize racial disparity and inequity But I also recognise that um, inequity among many other groups, right from age to faith, to those with criminal convictions, to those from various social backgrounds, um, to those with disabilities. I recognise it in many ways. And so I think when you can get into a room with sort of the powers that be, you know, whichever sort of space you're in, and you can be a voice for those who are not in the room. I think there are many that do do that. Um, and I think I think the thing I always find um, interesting, and I guess I'd like to challenge is, is, is it not being self-serving? So there can be many that do get into those rooms and don't leave the door open, don't try to bring in others, don't try to empower others. And actually, when we talk about this privilege, um, the, I guess maybe some of the differences is are we empowering um, and galvanising enough influence among other minority groups 
so that their privilege is more recognisable. Because if you think about it, the rhetoric that ma the majority of those from underrepresented groups are in minorities, um, that rhetoric in itself is, is, is um, minimising it, isn't it? Because you're saying they're a minority, they're a minority. Sure. In fact, the all-party parliamentary group that I'm co-secretariat of, we call our report the creative majority, because actually what we were saying was that we, we, we want to change this rhetoric so even though geographically and demographically we could be the minority, and when I say we, I mean various underrepresented groups, I think that if we sometimes change the language around that, we may recognise that there is a privilege in our, in our groupings and, if you like, and in our intersections. And so for me, we can, we absolutely can and are using privilege. It's just about us recognising that we are, we have our sort of own value our own powers it's it's not about us in comparison to others and i think maybe if we if we understand that there has to be some comparison of course um but we don't let that define the actions that we take now obviously i'm, I'm speaking to you and you're there at the bbc yes. at, um, <laughs> newly installed as the interim head of creative diversity is that the correct title yeah it is excellent. Now, in terms of succession, you follow the likes of Jean Sarpong, who is soon to depart her post as Director of Creative Diversity, and Miranda Wayland, who was Head of Creative Diversity and is now at Amazon. Um, give us an appreciation of the challenges that they have faced in those roles and subsequently what they've been able to accomplish in that time at the BBC. Um, so I can think really about so, so in terms of data, things have moved along. So, um, and all of that, because um, I'm only four weeks in, but I've seen the data. So I know that we have made progress in some areas, not necessarily in all. Um, and some of the areas in which we haven't made progress in all is an industry-wide challenge. So I can see that as happening across all broadcasters. And in particular, that's a focus on uh, disability and, and disabled representation on and off screen. And so... Uh, and that's just one of the areas, but um, way back, so, sort of three years ago, um, when Tunde Ogunbesan was in place as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion, um, whom I, I, I have a lot of respect and time for because he didn't always get an easy ride publicly, but he focused on the delivery um, and he had a really clear strategy and ensured that he worked to achieving that strategy. And so it's why we not just him, I'm, I'm sure, but like him and the team and, uh, and all the hardworking people here in the BBC did move us on and the data shows that in a lot of the re public reports that are out there around where we've got to. Um, Why do you think today's work wasn't appreciated or the level of engagement? I think our industry's... Um, uh, this is just my perception, by the way, but um, I think our industry's a bit uh, tough on people that come from other sectors. Um, so, so Tunde was from oil. He was at Shell prior to prior to his time at the BBC, and he's since gone on to Saudi Aramco. So he, but I think where where it's a challenge is we are an industry, and you probably know this too, Emmanuel, where we're all a bit cliquey. Actually, let me take myself out of that because I'm not. But there is, there is an industry where it's quite cliquey. Do you think you do you agree with me that there's an element of that? No, no, no there's cliques everywhere. Yeah. And so I think when someone comes in from the outside, 
everyone challenges their credibility because they're not friends with, they don't know, they didn't work here, they, you know, they hadn't been in this space for that long. And they don't appreciate actually that coming from an external perspective, you can bring so much change. It's so interesting because with the APPG that we run, Alex and I run, um, we did roundtables that were, so just to give some context to the APPG, for example, we um, were trying to establish effective practice around diversity and inclusion. And so we asked the industry, the creative industries um, uh, in its entirety. So everything from publishing um, to arts and culture. And then we had a round table that was learning from other sectors. And that's where we had the likes of tech, construction, financial services, education, charity, who were all talking about the work that they do around diversity and inclusion and equity um, and what's been effective in their sectors. And that was actually so beneficial to us understanding um, ways in which we could we could learn as a creative sector. So th the point I'm making is that people kind of, if you're not in this kind of, if you weren't at Channel 4 or you weren't at Sky, you weren't at Netflix, you weren't at Amazon, how could you possibly know how to kind of um, run a, 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 an audience-focused organisation like the BBC? But actually, you bring so much other expertise into a role from very, you know, from a different... Um, lens and so you can accompany what we already have in the creative industries and all the experts that make up the wonderful world of the BBC with this other experience and I think people just gave um, Tunde a bit of, too much of a hard time on his not being in that kind of clique rather than focusing on the strengths that could come from that um, and also yeah I just think I, in my perspective that from what I used to hear at events and things it was more around He's not from our sector. How could he know? And I, I didn't agree with that at all. I think he did a brilliant job. One of the things that was levelled against Tunde was the lack of engagement with black organisations that were doing the work, uh, not just in diversity and inclusion, but in representation. I mean, Buff, notwithstanding the British Library Film Festival, there were other organisations. And I guess across the board, the impression that I got was that that level of engagement was not as authentic and as committed as it could have been for such a position because obviously the bbc is an organization that we all pay for yeah in many ways they don't fully represent the views of its customers so is that something that well, i'm sure it is something that you're aware of but what the bbc do about it is i guess and there's always been that fundamental question that's not been answered yet because of the criticism that the BBC continues to face. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I don't, obviously I wasn't here in um, Tunde's tenure, so my um, uh, opinions on it, I guess, are as an external and not and not as a BBC employee. I wasn't, I wasn't a BBC employee at that time. And even now I'm not an BBC an employee, I'm an external consultant that's in this space. So, um, I think as well, something though that I would just say from, so I can't, per, I couldn't personally comment on Tunde's engagement because I have no idea. <laughs> but um, what I would say though, is that Tunde's one person and has a huge team. So it may just not have been his, you know, when you're at that director level, you're trying to strategically make sure everything happens. So I don't know whether it was him or whether it should have been those that were focused on particular areas like film or factual or, you, you, do you know what I mean? That maybe could have, um, would have been engaging with these groups so I don't know I can't honestly comment on that um, but what I would say now though is um, I think there is huge efforts from what I see four weeks in remember um, from 
from content to engage with particular groups. I think um, sometimes those groups underestimate or, or assume that some content makers know who they are. So for example, you may have spoken to one commissioner, but unless they've shared that with all the other, we've got so many commissioners and remember we're across the UK. So unless you've shared that, you know, your, your existence and, and um, with them, uh, they may not, the other groups may not know of you and I'm seeing that. And then there'll be somebody else in a different commissioning team and you mention them and they go, oh my God, excellent, introduce us. Do you see what I mean? So there's that, there's that, um, it's because the BBC is so massive, it's whether or not everyone is talking to each other. So sometimes you might feel like you haven't got the, 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 um, the traction in one space, for example, but don't, um, it's massive. So, and people are kind of heads down doing things. So they just may not have mentioned you to the person even sat next to them, if that makes sense. But could the BBC do more to so make that, sure that- So that's what I was gonna come on to next. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I was gonna come on to next. So, so that's all I would say in terms of if, you've, if you have engaged with people, don't stop, your, don't stop at that one person. Look elsewhere from, from your own proactive position. Yeah. In terms of um, the BBC, I think, of course, I think all of us could do more. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a industry and not specific, not not um, media sector specific. I say this to companies that are working in financial services, professional services. You too can be proactive in finding these individuals. The one I've got a column out today, and the one question I'm asked all the time is, where is the diverse talent? How do we engage with them? And I always wonder to myself, how do you not know where they are? <laughs> and that's down to their, uh, maybe their, um, how they look for talent, where they look for talent. So absolutely, they could be doing more. And in the instance of the BBC, of course, they could be doing more. Uh, you know, and 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 I think I think I can say as someone that's here now, and I think people want to to do more. I think sometimes they're, um, and this isn't to defend them. I think they, I think they form relationships with with particular groups, and then maybe they get such strong relationships with those groups that they. Um, and you know what it is? It's all about relationships, isn't it? So if you've built those strong relationships with those groups, and I don't just mean, um, I mean, from all walks of life, I mean, those that are ethnic minority, I mean, those that are identify as LGBT. Do you see what I mean? I think they, um, they do have those relationships. It's just, there are so many organisations that are led by so many diverse groups. It's just whether or not they've caught up with all of those groups. So that's why I think it's a it's a two-way relationship. It's it's the efforts of any organization, including the BBC, to keep engaging with, keep looking for, keep finding, keep building. And it's also the job of those in those spaces to keep saying, we're here, this is who we are, this is what we do. And you know, sometimes it's about if you want to be found, be easily findable. And it's about them saying if you if you want to find people, keep looking, keep engaging, change where you're looking, diversify who you're engaging with, ask around. Um, and I think I, I do think that we have a we have a more um, because I don't know if you know that there's um, since June's come in, in relation to your question about June, June, June launched with um, Charlotte Moore, 100 million. Um, uh, about, yeah. 100 million commissioning spend, yeah. um, which meant of the existing commissioning spend, they were at least hoping to see 100 million spent with. Uh, with a criteria, a criteria of three things, diverse led, diverse owned or um, diverse portrayal. And so there is something about um, the fact that, and reports are going to come out on this soon, on the fact that um, 
content have done and actually in some instances probably exceeded what they thought they would do in year one and that is through engaging with groups so but that doesn't mean they've engaged with everybody do you see what i mean it just means that they've engaged with a variety and it was around social economic diversity disability and ethnic minority so there were three groups so my sort of advice would be um which of course what we're doing internally is who's out there make sure you're engaging across all of content content's massive remember it's radio it's sounds it's tv it's regions it's nations it's massive um and then it's also um making sure that you as an organization out there and not you personally Emmanuel, but just people generally make themselves very very visible and it's just because you hadn't got very far with one person doesn't mean you can't flag yourself somewhere else does that make sense yeah, and just to be clear on the hundred million, was that a hundred million of new money, or was that? No, 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 no. And there's there's a um, there's a whole page on this. I think it's really important because I don't know where, but I, I get the sense that there's been a sort of miscommunication or misunderstanding around what that hundred million was. There's a page actually on the BBC that has a hundred million commissioning spend with a whole page of FAQs, which explains exactly how it works. Uh, it wasn't new money; it was just of the commissioning spend that, that the BBC has for commissioners to spend they were just saying that in a in a commitment to um see more diverse portrayal engage with more diverse owned and diverse led organizations that they were going to at least sort of spend a hundred million and this is the criteria and they announced it in the hope that they all those groups that they weren't already kind of engaging with would know that this was a new commitment and would if they felt maybe disengaged with would re-engage or reflag themselves in a way sure um, now, to give BBC their credit, one of the things where diversity is truly in action is in radio that you kind of mentioned there. Now, I know um, every Sunday night across the BBC radio network, all uh, wherever you are in the UK, you get two hours of black content. So in London, for example, you have Dottin Adebayo, 8 till 10. Hey, Dottin. In Derby, you have um, Devon Daly, um, 8 till 10. And then in Bristol, for example, you have Kevin Philemon. Mm. So across the UK, you have that black spot, as it were, 8 till 10 on radio. I mean, th there's no reason why that can't be translated to television. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking out the box here. Is that, is that something that could translate to television? And if so, through what means could that be a possibility in order for content to be given that national platform? Um, do you know what? It's, um, I feel like I'm not equipped to answer that. And the only reason why I say that, it's not me dodging the question, it's that, um, no, I'll put you on the spot to be fair. Uh -huh. Yeah. And TV, TV works, um, slightly differently, doesn't it? Because, um, just trying to think as an audience, but like, I think, it, I think it works slightly differently in the, um, trying to think like do we have i don't watch enough live television i watch stuff on iplayer so i'm just trying to think because i can't think of a schedule but i'm trying to think where there's the um you mean the regional aspects of it because obviously that radio from that i mentioned is all regional even though yeah it's very much with a black emphasis yeah but it's also about um i'm thinking like what slots on telly are there the where it's like a regular show sure sure do you know I what mean, i mean i was trying yeah. to think like 
I know we have this, I'm trying to think of the daytime. I'm never in the house in the daytime. So I'm just trying to think like in terms of daytime. Yeah, that's a good point. I think. Like, and then in the that. evening, it's like, what do we yeah. watch? There's the soaps, isn't there? And then there's usually something else, which I can't really remember because yeah. I watch everything on iPlayer. I, right. I don't want, I don't have enough time to watch it live. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not sitting there where I'm going, oh, this could have been a slot for that or, because I'm not watching, I'm not watching TV via that way. So I don't feel that equipped to answer that. If that's I hear no, I mean, just from what, what I watch, I know that in news and current affairs, for example, when they go regional, they would commit a slot to that. So I think Inside Out, um, which is current affairs. That would yeah, be so I've done some shows on that. So I think they do, I think they do, Inside Out, I think does cover quite a few um but yeah, anyway, carry on. So, for example, I do think they do a few. Yes. That, that's what I'm pretty sure that's run by Dippy, and Dippy is really open to getting a broad range of subjects in that. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's kind of regionally based. So, again, whichever part of the country you are, you get your own kind of inside out. And then when um, the politics was on with Andrew Neil, the show, Daily Politics or Sunday Politics, um, they had a regional opt-out, that's the word I was looking for, where for 20 minutes, if you're in London, you get your usual Westminster, Scotland, etc., etc., etc. But in terms of you and your legacy at the BBC, what do, you, what do you think that looks like? Do you see yourself having this role full-time or...? Yeah, so I don't, so I am literally six, I'm here for six months, so I, I've had to recognise that um, there's not going to be too much time for a legacy because culture change doesn't happen in six months um what i have made my priority though is um during this time is making sure that the creative diversity unit is working productively and effectively with content so while the cdu doesn't get to commission it doesn't have that power it is here to advise consult support and provide um, yeah, expertise to content teams who are against some of these goals that we've committed to externally. So what I want to make sure in this six months is that we are doing that at a very high standard and we've got a strategy in place that means that the CDU team and the very talented team of individuals that work across disability, um, uh, social economic diversity, ethnicity, and uh, LGBT and more and class, for example, that we're making sure that um, that the content teams uh, get the most value out of those expertise so that they can portray the audiences and all their diversity across the UK. And so that's what I want to make sure is working um, as well and as effectively like a well-oiled machine as I possibly can, because I don't have the advantage of time to create new things i can only create um a strategy that actually will be effective and also um products if you like and products sorry processes that ensure the effectiveness of that so i've had to be really realistic with myself and that's difficult because i'm really ambitious and i care so much about this subject but in in actual fact if i if i want to do the audiences license fee payers um, if I want to do serve them correctly and well, I need to make sure that what the BBC does have in place is working as effectively. And I say effectively as in, is it making a difference? Um, 
because we can say best practice, but what does that mean? So I'm, I'm really interested in effective practice. So are we as a CDU giving our content makers, commissioners, what they need to portray audiences on and off screen? And that means having a strategy in which to do that, in which audiences start to clearly see it. So I'm just hoping that I'm able to stabilise and create a strategy that allows whoever comes in after me and that and the, the person that comes in after June can continue that. Um, so that's kind of what I've had to be realistic about. Um, yeah. One last question. Before yeah. we, now, as we are on Choice FM, um, our listeners will be eagerly wanting to know um, whether you, in fact, were a fan of the old Choice FM back in the day. I'm sure you were because you're around that long. Um, <laughs> and also... Uh, would you have a favourite track that we could play at the end of this interview for our listeners? So two questions in one there. Oh my God. Okay. So uh, Jenny Francis was absolutely the best. I loved her. I listened to her nightly, every night. I loved, I can't remember if it, if I'm going to say the right name, but when Lucy and um, The Breakfast Show, I'm so sure it was Lucy and what was that gentleman's name? I want to say Kevin J, but I feel that's not right. Martin J. Martin, Martin J. Do you yeah. remember they had the breakfast show? That's right, yeah. And their chemistry for me was like the best. I used to listen to it in the morning. I loved it. It was the so funny. Yeah. I thought she was great and I thought he was great. I loved them together. Um, uh, and then I used to also love Kat and um, Richard Blackwood's show. I think it was on a Saturday. I used to find them two so funny, like so funny. Oh God, I remember those days. Also though, Choice FM Weekender. I only went to one of them, but they were great fun too. <laughs> I was like 16 um, and I went on a coach and we went down to, I don't know if it was Great Yarmouth or somewhere. And it was like, probably, yeah. yeah, it was really good fun. Um, and the song um, that I used to love that Jenny Francis used to play Oh my god, there were so many songs. There was um Kiss You, and I can't remember who that was by. Oh, the, the names escaped me, but she used to play that often. She used to play lots of Joe Thomas, which I absolutely loved. I knew all the words. But the one of the songs that I love that she used to play a lot, uh, which you could play, is by 112. And it was called Right Here for You. Okay. I think it was right here, I think it was called. Right here. That song you could play. It would really take me back to that time. On that note, Joanna Abai, <laughs> interim head of creative diversity at the BBC, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a very busy person and I appreciate you spending your time with us today on the Screen Lately Show. Good to thank see you. Thank you. Again. Lovely to see you too. Love to your wife. And thank you so much for including me. And I look forward to hearing the show again. And I'll be tuning in for the rest. See you no, all the other guests. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> yes, of course. I'll see you later, Manuel. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Tears from your 
that I'm thinking of you And how can I get you to see That you're somewhere you ain't supposed to be Just give me one chance To prove to you I'm a better man Never break apart You'll always be my heart Whatever he won't do You know I'd do it for you ScreenLately.com. Tweet at ScreenLately. Text us in the studio on WhatsApp 07548 806 927. The Screen Lately Show on Choice FM UK. Bohemia Euphoria Film of the Week on Choice FM UK. 
Amplifying the voices and stories of underrepresented people through film. made films about things that mean something and they can actually help to move things forward. Do you terrifying potential of this film. Thursday tea time on Choice FM UK as we segue from afternoon into evening. Tiffa Campbell will be with us in just a few moments to mark our card with a new LGBT documentary which has launched on My5 to mark the beginning of Pride season. Before we hear from him, let us mark your card with the Bohemia Euphoria Film of the Week, which you can rent or buy via the bohemiauphoria.com streaming platform. Register your details first and follow the on-screen instructions to find a treasure chest of documentaries and films, including sci-fi offering Pulsar, which you heard there in the package. Directed by Aurora Fernley and starring Jesse Buckley, soon to be seen in Alex Garland's Men, David Jassy, who was in the movie Panic, and Tahira Sharif, who was in ITV drama The Tower. Jesse plays Jonah a peacemaker of high regard and many years of loyal service. But when his last mission is to give aid to a planet of people he believes war thirsty and beyond forgiveness, he goes AWOL. Stowed away on board an old asteroid mining vessel, Jonah barters passage with the all-female crew of Excons, but he doesn't get far before the ship hits a freak solar storm. The suspicious crew turn on each other, believing one of them carries a curse causing their misfortune. Watch Pulsar today at bohemiauphoria.com. The Bohemia Euphoria Film of the Week on Choice FM UK. Amplifying the voices and stories of underrepresented people through film. Another film you can watch on demand is Moments That Shaped Queer Black Britain, commissioned as a BET UK original to complement the BET US pipeline on the Paramount-owned channel, 
which moved to Channel 5 streamer My5 last year. In a moment, we'll hear from director Topher Campbell. But first, here's the official promo trailer. A BET UK original. I had never seen black queer people take up space in that way before. And that felt powerful. A story about beauty and resilience. And then the world saw there's a whole section of society that we're not privy to. A chorus of freedom. Loud, (laughs) proud and fierce. A crescendo of tenacious voices celebrating their innate beauty. It's breathtaking. This is the first time black queer men have been represented in a positive way. These are the untold stories of the brave ones who broke ground and flipped the narrative. It is a different kind of political strategy through an artistic lens. These are the struggles they overcame to live unapologetically in their truth. In the creation of culture, we give ourselves life. These are moments that shaped queer black Britain. You cannot be what you cannot see. Premieres on the 1st of June, exclusively on My5. Joining me now on the Screen Lately show is someone who I have not seen or heard from in about three or four years. Campbell, hello there. Hello, uh, how are you doing? You right? right? It's been a while. It's been a minute, yes, it is, yes. So I've heard about your programme. Yes. Wasn't wasn't, um, wasn't uh, Morgan Freeman on it or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. All the yeah. reasons you heard it was true. Yeah, he was yeah. on. Excellent. Well done. Well done. Everyone's booked and busy at the moment, and there's so many exciting projects that are coming. Yeah. I only caught yeah. wind of yours a few weeks ago, actually. I saw. Yeah, okay. I saw Pat Young talking about it, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Oh. Okay. Pat was out there spanging the drums. Kids, I'm glad to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Last time our paths crossed was. I believe the Triforce Monologue Slam in Luton. Oh, wow. That was a whole different universe. Yeah, that was a whole different world. Yeah, that was a very different thing. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was heading up a company there for, um, yeah, that's, that I, I set up and, and kind of made sure continued. That, uh, that was really bringing a lot more arts provision to a region that didn't have it. So that's what that was about. Um, but my principal role in life is making films and telling stories. So that's what I've been doing since. <laughs> so yeah and before we touch on that more just just um kind of put into more context why it was important to you to develop that initiative in Luton certainly yeah it was part of um uh, an arts council national wide development called uh, which was about um you know creative creative people in places it was about kind of bringing invigorating artistic infrastructure into areas which didn't have any kind of infrastructure at the time Luton was very lacking in uh, nationally funded organizations and companies um, and I went in there with a remit to kind of you know bring in uh, some you know uh, connections from across the country across the world and to make sure that there was a legacy of providing art by and for the people of Luton and from other people as well so I created a, a company called Revolution Arts which has since won awards and gone on to great things um, um, uh, with, a, with another um, uh, producer involved. And um, yeah, so we did some amazing things. And one of the things I wanted to do was, was partner with, with Monologue Slam, which is a Triforce Creations um, uh, project that they do in terms of encouraging um, non-represented, underrepresented talent into the industry. 
through. And Monologue Slam was one of the things I wanted to introduce him to Newton. And it was like one of those great things that, that we did. And uh, it was a great partnership with Jimmy and his crew. Yeah. And when you see what Triforce is now doing nowadays with the TV show, Sorry I Didn't Know, and the award ceremony, which for a few years was taking place at BAFTA, talk to people that are not aware of Triforce about the kind of groundbreaking work that they've been doing in the industry. Well, Emmanuel, I mean, I'm not a Triforce. <laughs> I don't come here. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sort of employed by Triforce in any way, but I do admire what they do. They're a really interesting independent production company working on several platforms, particularly in film and television. And they've got a great, a great new little comedy show out. Um, uh, and also Jimmy himself, is, I think, is developing content um, around uh, his own kind of uh, experiences. So I think it's a, a wonderful thing that they've been doing for many, many years. I think they started doing Monologue Slam with a partnership with the Theatre of Stratford East, and it's grown from strength to strength. And I think a lot of artists, individual actors particularly, and some writers uh, get a lot of kind of, um, you know, uh, props from the work they do with the Triforce. So, uh, yeah, as far as I know, they're amazing. They're amazing people, fantastic people. And so, to, to yourself, Tofa, how did your passion for film, television, theatre, writing, where did it all start for you? Well, I started, I started off as a theatre director at the age of 22 um, as part of the region, what was called the Regional Theatre Young Directors Training Scheme. Um, the sort of thing that people like um, Sam Mendes and, uh, and uh, uh, various other people, famous directors, got into. And I, I was awarded this thing at a very young age. And I got, I got into directing. I was directing theatre, basically. And it was an amazing opportunity. It was difficult. Um, this was we're talking about the 90s. Um, so it wasn't particularly a fertile ground for black creatives uh, and I was very young um, and it was one of the things that I, I started doing um, and I had a passion for storytelling in theatre ever since I was a kid but that thing was a hobby always kind of you know thankfully kind of gets you know gives you the kind of energy to keep going and when I was a kid going to the local uh, the school theatre you know kind of outfit was one of the most important things for me as a kid it probably saved my life saved me from doing lots of other things that I could have done as a teenager. Um, but directing and storytelling and film only came as in adult life. I mean, you know, I came, I found my first film in 1995. And, and part of it was because I just wasn't seeing myself. I'm a black queer man. Though in those days, black LGBTQ people were completely invisible in the 90s and also really ostracized by the community, both the black community there was racism in the white, white gay community and in wider society we thought it was improbable. Uh, so I wanted to be one of the uh, voices that enabled uh, to, to bring visibility to people who were black and LGBTQ um, onto the screen. And so I did my first project in 95 and I've continued on and off since then working in mainstream television and film and theatre. And so obviously you kind of touched on the fact that um, until you kind of went into that space yourself, you didn't see black LGBT people being represented on screen or off screen. So who is it that you were going to to just kind of get that guidance or kind of signpost that people like you actually existed yeah, in, I mean, it was, and in society in general? It wasn't so much that we didn't exist. We existed in very negative ways. <laughs> so, sure. so it was mainly, uh, it would be mainly a very you know, negative portrayal of black LGBTQ experiences. But there were people, the major, the major pioneer was obviously Isaac Julian with his films Looking for Langston and Young Soul Rebels. And he had a hard time uh, back in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s and trying to making, making that kind of work. 
basically on his own, really. Um, um, so, and there wasn't really much room for black people to make content in the 90s when I started, let alone anybody. There wasn't very much content room for black directors, young black male directors to get ahead in, in the theatre industry either. So you had to do the Spike Lee thing in those days. You had to guerrilla style it and you had to make it work. Um, so I think the challenges are not necessarily um, ones that have been overcome yet. I think that's something that's still ongoing because there is still a huge amount of ostracism and negativity and prejudice from the black community towards LGBTQ people and from the wider wider society in terms of racism. So uh, Phil Apoku, uh, who was the founder of UK Black Pride, talks about the twin pillars of racism and homophobia. But I just want to say, the other thing is, I'm interested in the aesthetics. So it's not just like the representation. I was interested as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, what kind of theatre do we make? What kind of films do we, what kind of films do we make? So I'm very much interested in indie filmmaking aesthetics and um, very much interested in kind of conversations that, you know, creative storytelling can make. And I guess bringing it full circle to your upcoming documentary, which people can see on My5 and it's part of BET UK. Very excited when I heard about it quite recently. Um, I guess the stage is yours in that moment. Tell people what they've got to look forward to this summer. Well, this is an amazing upbeat and celebratory project that I've been involved in. I was very happy to, to be the conduit in terms, of, in terms of directing and producing this to a lot of the stories that are unheard, that have been invisibilized by lots of different, for lots of different reasons. I know a lot about the African-American experience in terms of the LGBTQ life and culture. And a lot of that come, a lot of our understanding, a lot of the language that people use, uh, girl and uh, sachet and all the sorts of language that, you know, RuPaul's drag race, all that language comes from um, shade, all comes from the black American experience. So people are in somehow kind of invested in, you know, the legacy of black LGBTQ experience, even though they don't know it. But what they don't know about is the rich legacy of black LGBTQ experience that's been going on in the last 30, 40 years in this country. And so what I wanted to do was bring all those pioneers together and tell stories about how it all happened. And it's kind of a really exciting kind of you know, very short, brief, but very exciting kind of introduction to black, lesbian and gay life um, and queer life, but also shows you, hopefully, that these stories are not just separate. They're part of the black experience. They're part of the British uh, cultural experience. And that's what makes it exciting. The other thing about it, which is very clear, is that, you know, a lot of the conversations around black LGBTQ kind of experiences based around victims. Oh, my God, they're so terribly poor. It's awful. And, you know, and those things are not necessarily untrue or they are films about us. But this is a film very much bias for us and for you as well. So I'm obviously I identify as black and queer. There are a lot of people within the film, all the people in the in the film, uh, the pioneers in the film are black or LGBT, black and LGBTQ. So it's just a it's a real celebration, and that's what makes it a really interesting thing. The other thing is, it's the first time like a mainstream platform, if you like, has put on a piece of work in this way. I think there have been other pieces, as I say, that have kind of talked about the problems and the issues. But I think this is more about how we have created the culture ourselves in this country and it's a great it's a great celebration and i was going to ask you on that i mean in terms of the broadcasters getting on board clearly there was a collective will to get this onto the screen can you 
kind of go into detail as to how those conversations transpired to, to finally get this story on air? Well, no, they, they were difficult conversations. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 the journey of this is, is a long one. It comes from um, a conversation that was first had with um, the activist Mark Thompson, who um, the AIDS activist Mark Thompson, who basically has a, a web uh, has an Instagram page called Black and Gay in, uh, back in the day, and I think BT wanted to do something with this 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 page, but over the several years it evolved into a, a conversation where they had a conversation with me about you know how can we make how we how can we tell stories that are important to the Black LGBTQ British. Um, uh, experience and so yeah, I came along and, and I kind of made sort of made this film as part of it. I mean, you know, working in mainstream TV is a, okay. Let's talk filmmaking. Working, working, and making anything happen is difficult. Really. And working in mainstream television, as I'm, I'm more of an independent filmmaker, is a very difficult place to work in because you're working within, within the you know in, within a formulaic space. You're working within a very mathematical space as things have to happen at a certain time for adverts and all this sort of stuff. And, which, to be honest, is a little alien to me, although I have worked in commercial TV on the drama-making side, but in a sense, the, the way in which documentaries are made are not necessarily for television, not necessarily about discovery, they're about kind of presenting something that's already almost known. So it was a really diff difficult process in terms of making sure that as the, as the main black LGBTQ voice in the room, that the stories that are being told had, their, had an authentically queer and black sort of, you know, um, genesis and where were, were people were able to say and speak freely within that context. And that it wasn't about just allowing us to interpret our lives for straight people, for cis people. And I think that was a very real battle um, that I had. And it was quite difficult to do that, given the context that someone like, you know, a, a very well-meaning channel like BT, which is itself has all these struggles around being a black channel, um, you know, interpreting that for that channel and for also for um, Paramount and Viacom, well, I think it's Viacom originally and Paramount, yes. was, was, you know, was, was, um, was challenging. You know, it's challenging. It would, you know, I think from personally that black people to a certain extent live within a certain hostile environment, but black LGBTQ people live within a dub doubly so. And I think the idea of freedom, liberation, the free of free expression, freedom to live is always under question, always been scrutinized for black LGBTQ people. And what I love about this film is that you've got a group of people who have said, look, in our lives, we dedicated to making a change, and this is how the change happened. And it's us who made it, and I think that's what's fantastic about it. And you've got people at Campbell X, uh, who I know very well, and obviously with Stud Life and those great yeah. films. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to honour the so-called big hitters. You know, this is not the definitive story by any means. Sure. You know. I think, I've, I hopefully it's an introduction. I think you've got stuff around culture, around politics, around AIDS activism. You have uh, lesbian and trans voices represented and you have stuff around pride and liberation. So, you know, uh, Campbell X is, is, he's a, is a mentor of mine. He's an amazing filmmaker. Isaac Julian appears in there. Lady Phil appears in there. Jeannie Yashere, an amazing comedian, um, narrates the whole project. I mean, it's a real, it's a really, it's a real coming together of these amazing voices uh, from the community, yeah. And I, I believe you had a recent preview screening of it at the uh, Ritzy in Brixton, is that right? Yeah, we, that was dope. I mean, BT don't usually do preview screenings, so it was like, 
this was like a real uh, little bit of a coup. So we had this moment, and um, Cecilia Dean, who's a commissioning editor, um, and Pat Young, I suggested this through, I don't know, a few, few months back, and uh, I think it was something they took on board and said, yeah, let's do this. So it was a real nice way to launch the project and to show how uh, serious the channel is in the UK, BT UK, is, is taking this project and, and its, its presence in the marketplace, if you like, um, which is you know, uh, not my purview, but it's part of, it's part of the, the effect of the film, I think. And I think it's, um, you know, it's just a really good thing to have a physical, you know, for a television program, to have a physical out there screening, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not for theatre, theatrical release. So that was a really nice thing. And yeah, so especially ahead of, head of the, um, head of the uh, premiere on My Five, on demand from May the 5th. So yeah, that's uh, so May the 1st, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So go from June the 1st, June the 1st, get it ready. I'm joining all of my social media and I keep getting June, so many numbers. Premiere, June the 1st of my five, on demand. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, because obviously as we're recording this, so the show would have already gone out. So th this interview is going out on the 2nd of June. But as you said, okay, you watch it on demand. Um, yeah. And to, to that extent, obviously you mentioned BT and Paramount and not Paramount, Viacom to an extent, and Viacom owned Channel 5, of course. Now you said it's going to be on my five. Was there ever the conversation had of it being on the main channel, Channel 5, to get it to an even wider audience? Um, I know, I think, I don't think that I wasn't part of that conversation. And right. I, I wouldn't want to speculate what their thinking was. Um, as I say, this is television, not not uh, not film distribution. If it was film distribution, I would probably be even much more in that conversation. But my five is an on demand, which gives it a lot more flexibility for the kind of audiences that that I think this this was, could reach. Um, I think BT sees itself as a, a, a youth focused or young adult focused channel, and my five represents that kind of energy. I think. So I feel, I mean, as again, I'm not talking officially for Paramount or My Five in this, in this way, but I'm saying I reckon that's probably their, some of their thinking. And I think that that will generate traffic more because people who are sort of, you know, within that sort of, you know, whatever, up to 35 demographic are more likely to kind of, you know, check it out whenever they want, as opposed to a scheduled thing on My Five. I don't think that, I think we need to move away from the status of where the, you know, where something appears. You know, since we had, you know, since we had this pandemic, you've got these major premieres of major blockbuster films or high, high ranking stars in films that are on Netflix or other streamers. And then you've got, you know, stuff happening in similar old school way on BBC One on Sunday night kind of thing. So it does, I don't think that kind of hierarchy exists anymore. I mean, we all kind of consume content pretty much as we want to when we're, when we're in bed at 10 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning or whether we're walking down, we're sitting on a bus or a train at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So having it on my five, I think, from my point of view, as a, as a, as a maker, means it, it get, people get go, oh, okay, I can watch it when I want to. And I think that's better than, oh, damn, I've missed it. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, or wait for it to be scheduled, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously you've got Pride Month as well, so the timing... Yeah, yeah. Well, very important yeah visibility getting getting the word out there exactly june is the beginning of the pride season pride is probably the primary pride month in the uk and then obviously pride goes right through to september i think globally so so yeah it's a good it's a good thing that, that it's timed for that it kicks it off for that time so people can see it what i love about it is that it's, it has the potential to go global which i i'd like it to, to happen obviously because 
beauty stroke paramount we've got platforms in north and south america and africa so i'm hoping that um, you know it gets to be seen by a much wider audience than just the uk and european audiences i mean from a personal and professional point of view i've been fascinated by the proliferation of these types of stories being told um i mean the screen lately show we work very closely with bohemian euphoria um which kind of um has a platform for these types of stories as well. And I've had experience working with the Irish Priors in Cardiff. And it's just great to see the quality of the stories and the richness of the storytelling. Um, and I, like I said to you earlier, when I heard about this um, film on the horizon, I can't wait to watch it. Many uh, yeah. more people. And then you mentioned, of course, Isaac Julian. And for people of a certain age, they think of Isaac, they think of young soul rebels. For those that have never heard of Young Soul Rebels, and that might be hard to understand, but let's just say no one has heard of Young Soul Rebels. Can you just put into words the significance of that film, it being released in cinemas as it was in 1991? Yeah. Wow. Um, well, that's a question. I mean, I think it's almost like, uh, it's like a very different era. I mean, I think talking about the fact that British cinema itself I mean, British cinema wasn't a massively, wasn't really a global force in the 90s. You know, it wasn't, and the kinds of British cinema that were being made from the 80s to the 90s were very much around, were, were heritage projects. Young Soul, uh, so we were talking about the Brideshead Revisitors of the World, you know, the, you know, the Maurice's of the World, the kind of, um, I think the first, in the 80s, the first, it was, what was the Hans Kreshi film that, in, that uh, he made um, with, um, uh, you know, there's a famous black and white film, is Hanif Qureshi? Um, anyway, we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get there, we'll get there. Um, so it's very little, you know, film wasn't a massive export from the UK in the same way it is now, or film and well, television particularly. So there's that context. And then you talk about black filmmaking. And then there's that context. And there were only black filmmakers of any note, really, that were kind of making head, 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 head strides into the industry. Back to the 70s, you've got Horace Over and you've got uh, Melek Shabazz. Um, but you don't have anybody, really. So Isaac was an anomaly in many, many ways. Um, coming out of the, um, I think it was something called the Black Audio Collective. That's right, yeah. Um, and so he came out of that sort of space. And he had collaborators. And the collaborators saw a way forward. I think Young Soul Rebels, as an independent black film in the 90s, early 90s, was like a, it was a, a revolutionary act, really, in many ways. I think it was something in general release. And but also it had the queer story within it, you know, the queer story within it. And I think Isaac, as a young man, young person in the 70s, was reflecting on that time when those kind of racial boundaries were less important to the struggle than the, uh, the collaboration of class between you know, the class, working class and black people and Asian people and so forth, and a time when, when people were politically black. So I think it's, uh, it, it speaks to that time, but it also speaks to the music from, you know, that was being influenced by Isaac's generation in the 80s and 90s as well. So I think it was a really interesting moment, but there wasn't, it's a bit, I, it's, I mean, I've experienced this myself. It's a bit like, you know, you, you make a film, because, but when, you, when, you, when it gets released, I mean, it's, like, it's literally like kind of launching it into dry land. 
because it doesn't get any traction, it doesn't get any momentum because there just isn't a the critical mass. As in, people literally the critics didn't wouldn't have known what Isaacs was doing, but also there wasn't the kind of way that films were promoted wasn't necessarily kind of congenial to things uh, to, to black culture, maybe to black culture. We live in a different era now, where multi-platform information gets to you in ways which are uh, unimaginable. I mean, I can. You and I, as filmmaker producers, we can we can market our own things. You know, not, you know, we can create and eat around things in very different kinds of ways on the gram, on TikTok, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You know, there are lots of different spaces for us to to be heard and seen. But up until really very recently, literally in the last five to ten years, that wasn't possible. So black filmmaking wasn't really kind of. I mean, even with people like Campbell X, who was making short films. Uh, there just weren't many, I don't know, many other actual black filmmakers are about uh, making work that, that was getting seen or heard. And we know that's because, you know, we weren't taken seriously or we were told that we had to make films in a certain kind of way, which were very white, patriarchal kind of way. And the, the, the funding wasn't given to us because we were told it was too niche or that it wasn't marketable. or So all these kind of things were happening to kind of, you know, con conspire against black creativity. Uh, Ngozi, uh, who did Welcome to the Terror Dome, had to go to America. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that, it's a big story, it's a big story. So I would suggest that, and also Isaac is, you know, a huge talent that, you know, hasn't been celebrated as much as I think he should have been and, and has gone, you know, more into the art world than, than perhaps he would have wanted to when he was younger. But he's a very successful artist now, so I'm sure he's not complaining. <laughs> Have you, have you spoken to Isaac recently? Have you bumped uh, across? No, we, we, we chat now and then. Yeah, he's a mentor of mine. He, we chat now and then. He's aware of this project. And uh, yeah, we, we, we chat now and then. Well, more more on, online because he's always traveling. I think he was in the States filming. And I've been fil always filming this and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about celebrating Isaac, and I'm, and I'm a passionate fan, as you know, of black film from. Horace and Menelik, who I started out with, with Black Filmmaker Magazine. And during the pandemic, I actually started writing a book about Black film directors. Oh, yeah. I reached out to Isaac on the gram, but he, he didn't get back to me. He probably was busy or traveling. But seeing that we're talking now, maybe if you could pass on the message to Isaac. Well, I mean, he's got an office, so you, you need to... <laughs> That's the best way to get hold of him is through his office. Uh, if you're not, if you're not known to him, not, yeah. I'm not speaking for him. I don't really know, but no, no, of course. Um, I, I will suggest that. I mean, yeah, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I'll you, I mean, after after when we go offline, I can help. I can pass on any email addresses. Sorry. No, I appreciate yeah. that. I mean, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like I yeah. said, black film is yeah, yeah, important yeah. To, to both of us, and it's great that it's documented through the work that you're doing and the work that I've been doing. And the book, the, the book you're making, is it is it out yet? No, no, I'm still writing it because, okay. you know, what, what I did during the pandemic was I knew who all the directors were and the, the ultimate goal was to get them all in one book. So I've reached out right. to all the directors that have had a theatrical release from Horace Ove in 1976 right the way through to the present day. So the last person was, oh, I can't remember now. Um, this year or last year, but yeah, basically every black film director that's had a film in the cinema, we've had to them for this book. I've Wonderful. had about 16 or 17 
But for me, the, the important ones are the ones right at the beginning. So obviously, Horace. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, what people, fortunately, I was able to interview before we passed away. So. Yeah. I mean, what people don't understand about the Black Audio Collective, so Mallory Blackman, Isaac Julian, um, uh, you do, is that when they were making films in the 80s, a lot of their films were being seen by uh, American, Black American filmmakers, um, 80s and 90s. And influenced, you know, cross-fertilized some of the kind of thinking about independent cinema and the possibilities of independent cinema. So this kind of conversation has always seems to be one way in terms of the states. It's always about okay, so this happened, and because you know they're a cultural superpower, and the Black Americans have a cultural uh, have created some amazing um, work. I mean, that's an understatement. But a lot of the more, you know, a lot of the influence has also gone the other way. And I know that Isaac taught. In the late '90s or the noughties, I think it was in the noughties. He taught at NYU, including and he included some my film, my film, my first film, *Homecoming*, and various other black filmmakers' films in his teaching. So there's a kind of a cross fertilization that doesn't get talked about. So to put that in your book because it's I'm, a very I'm, interesting. I'm taking notes. It's a very interesting, <laughs> you know, and it's not and it's not just the theatrical release people. It's also some of the art films, the short films have also kind of influenced cross atlantically as well. And just out of curiosity, I know you kind of touched on it in many ways, but how, how do you, how does anyone play to their, how do they use their disadvantages to then become their advantages when it comes to storytelling and filmmaking, especially as, as black and queer? How do, you, how do you play that to your advantage? Have you ever been in love? <laughs> yes, I'm happily married, yes. Yes, well then, you know, nothing, nothing, if you're in love, nothing stands in your way. So you have to love what you do. Is all whether you're, you know, seven feet tall and, and you know the world's fastest runner, or you're four foot ten and you can't hardly get out of the, out of you know get to the bus stop. It doesn't really matter. It matters where you are from. It matters, but it doesn't matter in a sense that whatever your desire is to make things happen, you need to. If you, what will you do to not to do that? And that, that creates a lot of. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy road. Filmmaking, as we know, is is a is a is a whole punt. Whether it doesn't matter what kind of background you have, it's a whole risk. You know, making telling stories, making theatre, writing books—it's all a whole risk. Who cares at the end of the day? But the only person that should care is the one, is yourself, and 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 then just well-being. Look after yourself. You know, make sure that you have the people you love around you, um, uh, whatever that means. You know, um, uh, queer families can be you know quite quite different or traditional families it's really matter um but wanting to do things and say things and and i think i don't know what people think out there but i i mean i, I when i was young i was caught up very much in the idea of a career but i'm really more interested in a vocation right now an idea of, of what is it that i want to say and how can i get to say it and there are lots of false starts there are lots of rejections and there are lots of um, uh, self-doubt that goes alongside that. But you have to sort of kind of be committed to it as a life mission because there's no real path. And actually, that's the interesting thing as well. Everybody has their different stories about how to do stuff. There's no real one path. And, it, and that's the one thing that, I, that I've taken away from the time I've been in the industries, if you like. Um, even though I still think of myself as an outsider, I don't really think, think of myself as in any, any industry at all, actually. Um, but uh, that's an interesting thing. But I do feel that I have things I want to say, and I feel that I'm, you know, I feel that I've created a, a skill set and um, a, a, a corner of kind of a craftsmanship, craft personship, where I can, I can, I can say those things, really. And I love, I love film. I love 
everything about film. I love theatre, I love storytelling. So, um, yeah, back to what I said before, the love affair is, is, is a real, is real. <laughs> the vibe is real. <laughs> and what's next yeah. for you? Sorry? What's next for you in, in that field of film, um, TV, theatre? Yeah. Right at the moment, I'm keeping my vibration uh, at a good place, so I'm, so I'm able to create. So I'm actually developing a couple of projects at the moment. Um, I'm still a gun for hire if anybody wants to look at me in terms of making drama. Still a gun for hire out there. Um, and so I'm hoping to, I've got to, yeah, two projects that um, I, really, I don't want to go talk about because uh, I'm still developing them out there. Um, and uh, I, but the biggest thing is I'm looking at creating, uh, sort of creating my own company really, or a company that I can kind of create an identity around. Um, which will help consolidate a lot of work because I do a lot of different things. I do I do art film, I do commercial, and I also do like broadcast. So so I'd like to be able to bring a lot of things under an umbrella so that what I have to offer is is out there to uh, to collaborate with probably more either more established companies or to or to draw down funds for the projects that I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Moments that shaped queer Black Britain, directed by Topher Campbell, on demand on my five. Topher, great to catch up with you. Thanks for sharing part of your journey with us, and long may it continue. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. Pleasure, and please watch the film. Thank you. <laughs> we'll do. We'll spread the word. Thanks a lot. See you then. Cheers. This hour of the Screen Lately show on Choice FM UK is brought to you by Clean Home Decor. Get your home looking sharp at clean with a double e homedecor.com. The Screen Lately Show on Choice FM UK. Welcome back to The Screen Lately Show. I'm Claire Anya Mosigwe. And today, for this half of the um, show, I'm discussing film with a very important, actually, um, emerging talent, Stefan Pierre Mitchell. He's been a friend of the British Urban Film Festival for over five years. We have had the pleasure of exhibiting his documentary, the undisputed, you know, multi-award winning deleted movie. And he's actually on set right now um, at the place where he's just doing post-production for his forthcoming second um, short film, which is Reshaped, a star-studded sci-fi romantic comedy. So welcome to the Thank show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Josephine. Uh, screen I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure. How has life been for you as an indie filmmaker post-pandemic now? What have you been up to? Um, it, it's, it, it, it's been good and it's, it's got its own challenges as well. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, a lot of our films were, you know, screened online. Um, that cinema experience wasn't, um, it wasn't available. Um, as what it used to used to be before, um, but I think we're coming back to normality, which is good. Um, casting is done a lot through Zoom's um, through Zoom's calls and meetings. So I think there were the benefits and the disadvantages as well of the lockdown and pandemic as well. Excellent. And so at the top of the pandemic, you were screening your movie deleted around the world. Talk to us about the reception of the movie and how it's been, you know, just traveling so far and wide. 
Um, well, we started in 2019, so we just had the opportunity to, you know, to have that ex cinema experience. Uh, um, for me, what I take was the BFI Soul Fest, where we had these people literally clapping and clapping and laughing. And that's the beauty of, you know, having cinema, you know, experience. You get to feel the reactions of people. But other than that, you know, it's been really... Um, welcome from Toronto to New York to South Africa, Johannesburg, Europe. Um, it's been um, a, a lot of uh, good response um, about the film. And to know that, you know, homeless is not just in the UK, it's something that we all recognize. And, um, and it, it, despite of uh, wherever we are, um, people connected with. So, Stefan, your experiences or sort of desires to get into film started from quite a young age. Talk to me about your early experiences, you know, growing up. Where did you, where did you come from? Because I feel, I feel like a lot of people don't <laughs> know you. You're, you're very, you, you have a very kind of unique look. I'm sure people are trying to guess your ethnicity. Um, people yeah. are curious about you. So talk to us about your early years. Like, who is Stefan? You know, I'm mixed race. You know, my mom is European, French, Italian. My dad is from the Bahamas born in the UK, but from an early age, um, I was raised by my mom, but at that time, at the age of five, six, when I rejoined my family, um, my mom was married to a Nigerian. So for me, even though I'm Caribbean, I still feel like I have this sort of Nigerian culture really um, given to me. And I'm very blessed about that because I get to have these two choices, knowing the Caribbean side and knowing also the African and the Nigerian side as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of my heritage. It makes whites and Caribbean, but people think I'm Brazilian, Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. um, people think I'm from, you know, Portugal. And, um, but I tend to probably take more from my mom than my dad. That's why. Um, but I'm very much, you know, uh, Caribbean and, uh, um, and you like European, but very much also Nigerian as well. You grew up in foster care. So did I. What age was you when you grew up in foster care? From birth. From birth. Okay. Okay. Um, so even though you was aware of your parents and your mum's um, Nigerian partner, you wasn't raised by them or part-time <clears throat> shared um, caring. Yeah. Yeah. And, and stop me, this is something that you're uncomfortable talking about, but I think, you know, what I, just from my perspective, something that I've come to realise is that kind of like the older you get, your childhood almost really catches up to you. And I think that a lot of us who have grown up in the care system or who have had social services in our lives, we try so hard to be like normal as children. And then we spend all of our twenties, like really trying to get away from that past and we've got to smash it. And we have all these sort of like imposter syndrome, things to overcome and trauma and therapy. And then I, you, I know that you're still on the cusp of becoming 30. I'm mid thirties now married with children. And so I've had, and then I had the, the pandemic. I had two children throughout that period. Um, what I'm trying to say, Stefan, is that I feel like there's almost like a reclaiming of your childhood and understanding why, in essence, like that had to happen for you to become the person that you yes. are. And I, and I was reading Viola Davis's book recently because um, I watched the special with her and Oprah and I cried a hundred times because I was like, oh my God, she's been through what I've been through, she's been through what I've been through, she's been through what I've been through. And I never knew that until I saw her book because again, 
you know, some of the most strongest looking people in our industry in many ways are actually the most broken, the most, you know, traumatized, the worst kind of things. And it is that real paradox, isn't it? Like having such a sensitive heart, but making such powerful art, you know, like your first foray into film is doing deleted, talking about the stories of a homeless man and homelessness in general. When you potentially have been through your own sort of trials and tribulations in life, you know, I, they call it like a, a wounded healer, that real paradox. Do you find that those sort of themes are entering your filmmaking because they're a lived experience at all? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, as we're growing up, um, you know, in foster homes, and we try to, oh, it's just normal, you know. Um, we just have to get away to put this face and probably we're the strongest people as well because we've learned to protect ourselves. We learn to deal with situations. There's no mommy and daddy to pet you. Or maybe I don't know what it's like. Mm. Um, this is going to be weird, but if I tell you now that I, I don't know how to ride a bike. Wow. No and sometimes I, it's the first time I'm actually saying it because I wasn't given. I wasn't crying about it because that's what I knew. Um, there was no fight for me because, you know, that was the environment I knew. And it's like, if you don't know, you don't. Yeah. Uh, or, or I didn't have Christmas present. That wasn't like, I wasn't bothered, really. Because, like I said, that's all I knew. That made me stronger. Um, but also growing up, you get into your mid-20s and towards early 30s and, you know, whatever, you become stronger to talk about it. Before, I never liked to talk about it, mm. you know. I just brush it off. But I always say that without the mess, we can't get to the glory stages. We need the fertilizers. We need these problems to make you stronger, to learn situation, and then you can be able to come on top. So yeah. I really think that the mess is important. I find it as a fertilizer. I find, you know, the problems that we're making is like, you know, when things are going wrong, that you learn things about myself, to learn things about or how can I correct to be able to get to that stages? For example, even deleted when I did it, what can I learn from that? And so that when I come to the next project, I will not repeat that process. And now I've worked with sort of high-end sort of production. Still, I've got tons to learn. And so what am I going to say? Again, is that fertilizer, is that mess that I've made, that mistakes that I will now to make more and more now. Makes sense. Sorry, I've just lost yeah. you. Can you hear? I just lost that last bit. Sorry. So like I said, I, I was just about to say that, you know, in times we need uh, the mess. Yeah. I call it the fertilizer. Yeah, no, uh, no. Whenever no, we're no, down, no, whenever no. we have rejections, it's because it's for us to sit back, learn from that mistake, and then come back. The main thing is that we cannot give up um, because then you're giving up. It's like a baby that crawls. If it crawls and stops falling and doesn't raise, you will never walk. Mm. And so we have to, this is the part of life. Um, sometimes we don't get things at that time, maybe because we're not prepared mentally, emotionally, or creatively, or whatever it is. So we need that, those days when we're down to be able to come up stronger. Um, so it's never easy. I love that. I love, and I might use that fertilizer analogy because I think you're absolutely yeah. right. There is, there is nourishment in pain. There is nourishment in challenges. And I yeah. think you're absolutely right. Like the more I'm sort of doing 
um, international things and starting to come back into the working world again after the pandemic and after, you know, um, sort of um, first year of raising the children together. It's like the conversations that I seem to be having with people is that the mindset is that, you know, maybe I wasn't ready, you know, maybe things take longer for some people because they've got some deeper stuff to deal with before they are foist into the spotlight and then they can't handle it. You know what I mean? Or yeah. like too much for them. Like you, you need to tidy up your energy, tidy up, you know, things that might be holding you back before you forge forward. But you are forging forward, which is really, really awesome. So why don't you tell us and the listeners about um, Reshaped? I know we haven't shared any first books yet or anything like that, but obviously I've been working with you and On Point Comms in the background. Yes. Doing some tastemakers about you as a filmmaker. So give us a little kind of sneak preview about what the genre is and how this story came to be told so we know what we're looking forward to. For me, it's important, first of all, that um, I, I make films that I believe in. I make films that um, comes from a source of truth. The example deleted was homelessness and the source of what's going on. With Reshaped was about love, friendship as well, and also relationship as a mixed race man and what we go through and how we react to it. Um, so it started with... Um, <clears throat> So basically, the film is about two couples who met online. Um, five years later, they have a child, um, but he's madly in love with her. And, you know, and um, also, uh, it also explores mental health. It also explores suicidal thoughts, um, the cage and the, the, the mask as, as a man of color that we have to put up and, 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 and to, you know, and be brave about it. So that it sort of explores that, but also the relationship with technology which is something I wanted to put a twist to it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to be able to see, you know, a lot of people getting into robots and they have all kinds of things to, you know, make themselves entertained or find companionship. And when it tears you, let it tear you. The heart shapes and reshape. And that message is that no matter what we go through, you know, allow ourselves to go through it. We're always adapting, always adapting. That's the bigger message of the film. Yes, it's going to be very visual. Eyebrows are going to be like, what the heck is this? The robots and all of that sci-fi. I wanted to use a bit of sci-fi to tell a story that um, is happening and be more creative with it. I love that. Can you just give that um, line again about the heart reshaping? I think that's such a beautiful analogy. I just missed it there. So my first lines of reshape that I, when I started writing were the following. Love unconditionally. And even the day hates, love must stay. And when it tears you, let it tear you. The heart shapes and reshapes. And this is just about to tell you, no matter what the situation you're going through, we have that gift of adaptation. And the heart always shapes and reshapes. So it's got a positive um, message behind it. You know, no matter what we go through. In this situation of reshape, it was love, friendship, and everything that he wanted from this relationship between him and the girlfriend. And so, yeah, I thought this will cover a lot of stages and uh, it's going to be beautiful. I'm excited to release it as well because I'm producing an album as well, an original motion picture soundtrack as well to go with it. So oh. um, working with different artists as well. So um, music and films will always meet. Like you had on No Shed, I remember the soundtrack was just, I remember it. It was so good. 
love the artists. So you know from experience that music will always meet together with films as well. You're right. You're right. It does help when they go hand in hand. I think I think what you're doing is really remarkable, and you know because you approach Thank you. film like they are a feature. The amount of energy, time, and dedication you put to the pre-production, the actual production. The post, look, you're making a, a soundtrack, but it is for a short film. And I think you're just in such a great position that when you do your debut feature, you've, you've really teased out and, you know, had different kind of genres that you've worked on. Stefan, before you leave us, there's one ritual that we ask all of our guests. Could you name your favourite or one of your favourite um, soundtracks from a movie? Like, what's that song that comes to mind that you think, oh, that's my tune? I, I, it's not, uh, I think there's, there's so many, but I think for me that has sound the taste of time, it has to be the, the Bodyguard Whitney Houston. Ooh, what, what song though? Yes. Um, Wrong to You, I would say.
Remember to hit subscribe on YouTube for all the latest clips and highlights from The Screen Lately Show, including our interview with Morgan Freeman, Laurie McCreary and Eddie Gathegi. That's it from us for today. We'll be back with you at the same time, same place, 4 o'clock on Twitter UK next Thursday, unless you hear otherwise. Bye for now. This hour of the Screen Lately show on Choice FM UK is brought to you by Clean Home Decor. Get your home looking sharp at clean with a double e homedecor.com.